Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. It is 2023. That means it's been 45 years since the original Superman with Christopher Reeve was released. And it also means it's been 10 years since Man of Steel with Henry Cavill was released. We are bringing you today a special episode on Superman 1 and 2 versus Man of Steel. We are joined by our friend Mr. John Reed from the 30-something movie podcast. We have also another podcast with John that deals with Superman called Podcast Full of Kryptonite, where we talk about the series Superman and Lois, and we also jumped into the Joss Whedon Justice League versus the Zack Snyder Justice League. So be sure and go and check that podcast out as well. And now here is Superman 1 and 2 versus Man of Steel. All right, everybody, welcome back. This is the Superman 1 and 2 versus Man of Steel. We've got our guest, John Reed, with us from 30 Something Podcast. John, how you doing, man? Good to have you. Oh, I'm doing great. I'm just, I'm excited to be here with you guys and, and just, I, I'm, I'm agonizing. I'm agonizing <laughs> over the decisions that we have to make here. It's going to change the course of Mighty Rivers. It may reverse the rotation of the earth. It may <laughs> cause people to forget that they ever is spent the night with Superman. I mean, whatever it's, I'm just, I'm ready. Let's go. Let's make some decisions. <laughs> okay. That's it. We got to have John as a guest on every single episode from now on. That's right. <laughs> it's been a day at work. So the fact that I knew that we were going to be able to get on and talk some Superman and, and all day while I'm supposed to be doing work stuff, I'm just walking around. Like, da, 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 da. <laughs> Now, but I'm so glad to be with you guys. I'm having so much fun listening to your show. Like, I, I cannot wait every single time your podcast comes up in my feed. I'm like, oh, nope, skip all the other ones. We got to find <laughs> yeah. out. Yes, is, is it Van Halen way. or Van Hagar? We got to find out. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for being with us, man. Why don't you tell us a little bit about 30 something? Yeah, yeah. So, we started about close to five years ago now. We are a bunch of teachers. So we're sitting around talking about movies. I think it was 2014. We were talking about, we're talking about 1984. And uh-huh. we're like, wow, there's so many movies that just, you know, 30 years ago, so many great movies from this year. And we just started rattling them off. We're just like, oh, and, and we're like, just think about from 84, you had Ghostbusters, you had the, the, the Nightmare on Elm Street, you had all these gremlins, all these different movies. Yeah, and then yeah. we started jumping into 85 and we're like, oh man, then you got Back to the Future. You guys. So as we were doing all this, I had kind of been wanting to do a podcast for a long time. Back before like even a lot of people knew what podcasts were, I had listened to some different podcasts and I thought, you know what? It sounds like those guys have a lot of fun. And I would love to find a way to do this someday and do it uh, completely for free and somehow eventually get paid for it. <laughs> so, you know, one out of three ain't bad. Um, so, you know, we decided uh, at that point, we kind of said, hey, you know what? Let's, let's get together and let's talk about movies. That'll be our theme is we're going to talk about movies that are 30 years old. And then that way we don't have an ending point. We're like, we can keep this going as long as we want to. We'll be able to keep going, you know, forever and ever and ever. And so we started it up. We made some mistakes with our first episode. I know there was another podcast at the time where the guys used to get together and and sit in a restaurant or a diner and they would record while they were having their dinner. And I thought, ah, it's a cool concept. Let's do that. 
So I hauled all of my equipment to our local Mexican restaurant, uh, completely not not thinking about the fact that, well, wait a minute, they're going to have mariachi music going the entire time. <laughs> we're all going to be munching on chips. Um, so that's our infamous lost episode. The one we're willing to start with is episode number two. Premise, like I said, the premise of our show is whatever year we're in, we're going back 30 years. One of the benefits, and I think you guys see this too, one of the benefits is, I mean, we're, we're friends in real life. You know, we're not just we're not just podcasting with each other because somehow we went we met online somewhere and you, there you go. <laughs> um, Jason was the one that turned me on to you guys. He he's probably been listening to you for two or three years now. Yeah, that's right. And I've been listening for the last year or so. The first episode that I listened to though was your two hundredth episode where you just you, you guys were. It sounded like you're all in somebody's kitchen together mm-hmm. and just having a great time. And I was like, this yeah. sounds. I mean, this sounds awesome. It totally hooked yeah. me in. Um, just all the movies that you guys were going through. Next 30-something movie podcast. Yeah, we're on on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all those different places. If you just look for 3-0 podcast, uh, you're probably going to find us on most of those different spots. But yeah, that's the easiest way to find us. And and 30podcast.com is our website. You can get to all the episodes from there. And I just want to say something about your co-host real quick. Um, it, it's almost always Pat and Bo that I hear. I know you have yeah. other guys who come in from time to time, but um, and I can't remember what the movie was that you guys were talking about. But at some point in the podcast, uh, Pat and Bo started talking about deli sandwiches. Maybe it was when the Harry Met Sally <laughs> is what I'm guessing. I think it was, yeah. And I was I was salivating. I was just like, oh. Pat and Bo need to just do their own Let's Talk About Food podcast, (laughs) and I'll guest host every time. All right, well, you're here to join us. What we're doing today, we're going to compare Superman the movie and Superman 2 kind of as one big conglomerate versus Man of Steel. Yeah, and John did a, an episode. It was just you on actually two episodes. And if you want to go to 30-something podcast, it's episode 181 and 182 yeah. uh, where he talks. It was the it was the 80th anniversary of the first Superman. He talks about in detail the whole origin story of Superman. And so when we first started talking about doing this podcast together, I was like, oh, crap, I got, I got so much research that I've got to do because Superman is just this, I mean, it's, volumes of of history and then i listened to those two podcasts and i was like well okay i don't have to do that research anymore i'm just going to tell people research go, done yeah. go back to john's 181 and 182 of the 30 something podcast and you can get all of the backstory on superman and today we're just gonna we're gonna focus on these three movies you guys have caused me such turmoil since <laughs> since you sent me a message and you were like hey would you like to be on an episode of the podcast in which we pit these movies against each other you know superman yeah. one and two versus man of steel and my initial reaction i mean well i mean it would have been my reaction right now too but my reaction was are you kidding yes i would love to and then when that <laughs> wore off i actually started thinking about it i was like okay all right let's do this superman one and two versus man of steel i totally know oh but wait there's this okay but now there's that this one better than oh you guys so there have been several times where over the course of the last couple of weeks since we've been messaging back and forth my wife will see me like furiously scribbling something on a piece of paper or on my <laughs> ipad or whatever and she'll be like all right so which one is it today and right. i said I, nope i'm not sharing <laughs> You're going to have to listen to the episode. I'm not sharing. <laughs> yeah. All of our listeners, you can have to hold out till the end for final judgment on these. Once That's right. We, once we've done our comparison. Hello so, to John's wife, though. Yes. Thank you, for How letting, you doing? thank you for letting him hang out with us today. It's double duty for the podcasting today. 
Superman the movie came out in 1978. and December 15th, 1978. Yeah, there's a big origin story behind it. Let's get in that because that really is interesting, I think. Okay. The Salkins uh, were the producers on this movie, and they bought the rights for this movie back in 1974. Ilya Salkin, the son, went to Alexander Salkin, the father, and said, hey, I think this is going to be a big hit. Now, Warner Brothers owned the rights to the movie at the time, and they said, yeah, I guess you can have it, but we're not going to give you any money for it. Right. So it was a negative production. Negative, negative pickup deal. Yeah, negative pick deal, yeah. So they had to fund the movie themselves and then get reimbursed once it was finished. That's right. This is the part where we defend the Salkins for just a second. For, for a brief moment, we're going to defend the Salkins. They had to front all the money for two epically expensive movies being filmed at the same time. Right. Yeah. Of course, it was their decision to film two movies at the same time, because as it turned out, they had had some success with that in the past, except for the fact that they got sued over it. (laughs) Back in the mid-70s, they had produced The Three Musketeers, which then, unbeknownst to anybody involved in the movie except them, became The Three Musketeers and The Four Musketeers. So all of the cast and crew got paid for one movie, even though they ultimately ended up doing two movies. And so the Salkins got sued by all of those guys. And now there is a there is a standard provision in all acting contracts called the Salkin Clause that says you got to tell us how many movies we're making right now. Do you know, I don't know, John, if you know who the actors that were considered to be Superman originally, this is a who's who's list in the 70s. I know that one of the weirder ones that every time I hear that, I was like, how oh, really? Dustin Hoffman, wasn't he one of them? Yeah, yeah. Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. Right. That's, that's one always that one of the stranger to ones. Me is Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali yes. was yeah. it was an, an actual consideration. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, obviously he's physically fit enough to be the guy, but has he been in anything? At no. All? No. No, but he could float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. And he was he was in a, he was in a Superman comic book. I remember he was, that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. Have you seen that, John? I have. You know what? I've read. I have a. I don't have the actual comic book. I read a reprint of it one time, and it was kind of it was meant to be this kind of a gimmicky thing throughout the seventies. And some of the comics they had like you know Superman would get matched up with like JFK or Bob Hope or <laughs> you know all these. I don't know what Superman and, and Bob Hope were doing, but um, you know they they had all these different. Uh, issues where they'd have like these special guest stars. Yeah, and I, I, I can't remember off the top of my head a whole bunch of the story, um, but it you know on the front cover, it's kind of an iconic cover with the comic books is, you know, Superman and Muhammad Ali in a boxing ring together, you know, getting ready to throw down. And uh, I remember seeing that as a kid and thinking, I don't know who that guy is, but he's about to die. <laughs> yeah, you don't get into he a fight with Superman. the best boxer in the world. Right. He's about to die. All right, well, here's the list, okay? I thought this was interesting. Now, when, when you say these people were considered, there was an approved list for Superman. The director can take this list and hire according to this list, right? So you have Al Pacino. You've got Dustin Hoff. You've got Bruce Jenner. You've got Steve McQueen and Paul Newman. You've got Clint Eastwood, Muhammad Ali, James Caan, Warren Beatty, Neil Diamond. Neil Diamond. And then finally, he wasn't approved, but Sylvester Stallone really wanted this part. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing about that. You know, uh, statistically speaking, it's still the safest form of travel. <laughs> Yo, Lois. <laughs> Yo, uh, you know, I, Lois, I, um, there was these, like, these two uh, you know, missiles, you know. And, uh, like, there was the one, and I had to go get the – I did it. Yeah, he, he fought hard. You know who uh, kept him from doing it? Marlon Brando. Uh, at the time, Sylvester Stallone was uh, considered to be the next Marlon Brando. And Marlon Brando said, we went to the producers like, no, this guy's not right. Stallone is actually out there. And you can find this on YouTube. And he is 
trashing Marlon Brando. Like, I have no respect for him as an actor, as a man. Really put him down. Well, let's talk a little bit about that since we're talking about getting the movie together. That was the way that they ultimately got them to buy in. Was the key piece. We, right? got, we got Marlon Brando on board. Mm-hmm. They got Marlon Brando, and then they got Gene Hackman. Well, once they got Marlon Brando on board and Gene Hackman, yeah. then Donner had some freedom to, okay, let me, we got the stars in place. Let me get somebody who looks the part. And I'll back us up for just a second. Before Donner was on board, they were, I mean, this is this is kind of definitive Salkins. They were trying to find the cheapest <laughs> place to make a movie. Right. And so they said, okay, well, let's go to Italy. Italy's cheap. But then Marlon Brando had a warrant out for obscenity charges from the last tango in Paris, the rape scene. So they couldn't go there. Guy Hamilton was the director at that moment. Right. Who had done all the, a bunch of James Bond movies. Right. But then... Their next option was, well, let's go to England, but Guy Hamilton would be arrested after 30 days of being in England <laughs> because he was tax evading like taxes. Thing, yeah. Yeah. So, so they, they chose Marlon Brando over <laughs> Guy Hamilton. Right. So yeah. then they had to find a director. Well, the way Donner tells it is he was sitting on his in his bathroom. <laughs> sitting in the bathroom. You can imagine what's going on there. <laughs> And he says, and I was really hungover, and I had just woken up, and I get this call, and it's some guy with a foreign accent saying, this is Alexander Salkind, you know who I am. And he's like, no, <laughs> what the heck do you want? What, well, I'm a producer and interested in making Superman. Would you like to direct? And he's like, yeah, you know, maybe. And he goes, we will pay you a million dollars. He's like, all right, you've got my attention. <laughs> <laughs> Where can I meet you? Donner at that point had only done The Omen and some other smaller movie that I can't recall right Gilligan's now. Island. He was a director on some of the Gilligan's Island episodes. Yeah, some TV really. stuff. <laughs> and then The Omen was his big one. And they, they had Jerry Goldsmith was the composer in Omen. He was, at Donner's behest, was supposed to be the composer for Superman, but then he wasn't available, so they got John Williams in. Then John Williams wasn't available, and Goldsmith was back in, and then Goldsmith was back out, and John Williams was back in. They had to settle for John Williams? Yeah, poor guys. Okay, and Margot Kidder got the part, so Donner was in charge of the auditions at this point. Yeah. He's lo- you know looking for Lois Lane, and she got the... I don't, I don't really have a list of people that were considered, but when she came into the room to audition, she yeah. tripped. She stumbled, and they thought it was charming. He instantly said he fell in love with, with her right then. I got to say, in rewatching it, she's not as unattractive as I remember her being. When I was a kid, I just thought... Superman could do so much better than this lady. <laughs> but but upon the rewatch, especially in Superman 1, she's not a bad-looking lady in that one. No, she's not. She's not. Now, by the time 1981 rolled around, she had had some breakdowns and yeah, lost some teeth. And yeah, it's really rough. Rode hard you know, and I, hung up I, with I think about, when, and I'd heard that before, about how she tripped, and they're like, oh, that's so charming. I have never been offered a movie part. <laughs> and, and I feel like I have done that so many times in my life. I feel like by now I should have an Oscar. I do think it's interesting when Chris Reeve was brought in to read for the part, he was six foot five, 170 pounds. And he went to the guys and they're like, ah, he's kind of skinny, you know? I don't know if he really right. could pull off Superman. And he sweat <laughs> profusely. <laughs> like at the end of Superman 2, you know, he, lift, he lifts up Zod. And in that moment, you, you see a little pit stain. Mm-hmm. on the superman really suit. yeah okay um and so when i heard you know he's okay so he has a pit stain you know that's that's something that happens to guys you can't help that but then i saw his actual audition tape before they had given him the padding and the industrial strength deodorant and i mean it's literally down <laughs> to his elbows oh, on man. both both arms and down down to his waist Poor guy. but when he he they brought him in he was skinny tall and skinny yeah 
And he went to him and he said, listen, I was a jock in high school. I can put on the muscle. Trust me, I can do it. Yeah. And when Donner said, okay, listen, kid, you got the part, but you got to make, make sure you can do this, you know? So he trained with David Prowse, mm-hmm. Darth Vader himself. We know you're a big Star Wars fan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, and, and that the first time as a kid when I had heard that somewhere, I don't know if I was reading, I was reading a book or a magazine article or something as a kid, and I found that out. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Superman was Darth Vader's apprentice. That is <laughs> outstanding. <laughs> outstanding. So then as they're putting the things together, they had initially, the Salkins had gotten Mario Puzo to write the script in this thing. Incredible. And Mario Puzo, if you... If the listeners don't know was the one who had written godfather one and two which of course just i mean were the record setting in their box office success i'm not really sure how you decide to put him in charge of a superman movie script but that's what they did he wrote a 550 page script that has never seen the light of day once donner got his hands on it he was like this destroys the, the bi- biblical canon of Superman. So he got Tom Mankiewicz mm-hmm. to come in and do the serious rewrites on the script. And once again, I'm going to defend the Salkins for a second. So they fronted them the money to get this done. Yeah. They had the insight to realize, number one, that comic book movies were going to be successful in the box office. Yeah, I think it's important to realize that in 1978, the idea of a comic book movie being successful was ridiculous. To me, that's what's amazing about this Superman movie. Yes, it was it was a hit when it came out. You know, people loved it. But even still, there were a lot of comic book fans that did not love this movie at all. It didn't fit with the Superman at the time in the comics. In terms of general audiences, you had the Batman 66 you had uh, Wonder Woman. She had the Incredible Hulk TV show. That's pretty much what you had in terms of right. superheroes on TV. Other than cartoons and other than those you know, three, there's probably other TV series that were out there at the time. Anything that was superhero, anything that was comic book related was automatically also campy. Like right. for yeah. some reason, they always felt like, oh, well, comic books are for kids. So we got to make this show kind of for kids. We got to make it campy. We got to make it silly. And then the fact that you bring out a Superman movie and you're like, you know what? We're actually going to try to do a semi-serious take on what if Superman was real. And some of the things I think in the early drafts of the script that I had read was they had all these crazy cameos for like these other actors and, and um, you know comedians of the time that were going to just like walk in for a scene and say something silly and then walk off. Yep. And that would have totally made it, you know, ju- just like the 60s Batman movie. It would have just made it silly. It would have yeah. made it cartoonish. And that's why I love that the the tagline, I think on the poster for this movie and, and maybe in the trailer too, was, you know, you'll believe a man can fly. And from what I understand, the uh, the Salkins co-producer, Pierre Spengler, Spengler, that's yeah. it. Yeah, he yeah. spent he spent two solid weeks with the DC executives developing an integrity of the character clause for the contract before they were willing to let Sweet. them that's awesome. let them have it. They did Glad not they did want that. it. They didn't want the Batman thing to happen to mm-hmm. uh, to Superman because it's too valuable a character. I mean, it's it's one of the American fables. No, can you imagine the pressure that the Salkins were actually under, not only fronting this financially, but as soon as you get the the permission to shoot this thing and let's go do this, then you got to figure out how how can I make a guy fly? That was a huge part of things. We can talk about that, the flight thing later on, but that was... That was definitely like the most critical issue of of the filming was we cannot make this look canned. We can't make it look fake. It's got to look 
real. They toyed with gliders and and cartoons until they finally got that complex cable thing. And I I still am amazed. So that's, that's, that's our origin story for Superman 1. And then for Superman and two, well, really? yeah, I mean, sort of. There's, there's obviously a, a story there with Superman two. So as the filming went on, the Salkins would constantly tell Donner that he was over budget and over time, and he maintains to this day that he was never told what the budget was and never told how much time he had to shoot. But it got to the point that he couldn't handle being in the same room with Pierre Spingler or whatever his name is. And so they had Richard Lester come in as kind of a go-between. Now, Richard Lester was among those guys from uh, the Three Musketeers and the Four Musketeers that was in the process of suing the Salkins at the time so that you kind of get this idea that there was a wink, wink, nudge, nudge of you'll get your money, but we're going to get it to you through Superman instead of through this this lawsuit. I I think there's no doubt. I mean, Richard Lester made a deal with the devil. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you guys have been screwing me over for all these years. I'll yeah. tell you what, we'll get you your money, but you got to help us out with Donner. Yeah. And so even though, you know, that we talked about them filming both Superman one and Superman two at the same time, at some point they said, Hey, this is getting so much publicity. We've got a chance to release it on the 40th anniversary of Superman. Stop working on part two and finish up part one. And, well, if that's not obvious, what's about to happen to Richard Donner, I don't know what is. <laughs> so they they take the ending from Superman 2 and put it at the end of Superman 1. The whole spinning the earth backwards to reverse time was originally supposed to be the end of Superman 2. The ending of Superman 1 was supposed to be as he pushes the one of the two missiles that Lex Luthor is sent off out into space, and that missile is what destroys the the Phantom Zone and releases the three criminals. Yeah, the the Phantom Zone that looks like uh, Queen Two, the album. <laughs> They're all trapped in the Queen album. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and in the Mario Puzo script, there was actually four guys that would they would have really had the album cover had they had. The <laughs> so yeah, so then they fire after after Superman One is a huge success. They fire Richard Donner and they make Richard Lester the director of Superman 2. And they have to let enough time go by that Marlon Brando's contract expires so that they don't have to pay him anymore. Susanna York comes in in that spot and kind of gives the, you know, I'm going to start teaching you. Which if you've seen the Richard, have you seen the Richard Donner cut, John? I have. Yeah, only once a few years ago. And I have the DVD, but I've only watched it once. I I enjoyed it. I liked it, but yeah, I, I enjoyed it as well. I mean, it's a little rough because they're using scenes from the test footage that they did and auditions that they did. But the thing that is compelling about it is the Marlon Brando part. Richard Donner set out to make this analogous to the Christ story. And there's really, when he has that moment where he's Uh, gone back after giving up his powers and he's gone back to try to get his powers back even though he's been told it's not possible it's ultimately Jor-El's sacrifice giving him his power that causes Superman to become super again. That whole scene is pretty heavy handed in. You cannot ever (laughs) get your powers back Never ever ever. So you better think hard about this. Okay. Is the bed ready yet? You left the crystal. (laughs) No problem then. Okay. I've conditioned my entire family to understand that if we're watching a comic book movie nobody ever dies (laughs) nobody ever nothing's permanent 
All right, it's right. not going to happen. But no, I, one of the things, like I said, I don't remember much, you know, in terms of some of the differences, details and the differences between the Richard Lester versus the Richard Donner cut. But one of the things that really stuck out to me, and I think it was one of the scenes with Jarrell, there's a part where he's kind of explaining some of this stuff to Superman, to Kal-El. And, but it's almost like he shoots a look over at Lois and it's almost like, you know, this is all your fault. <laughs> like there's a moment where he like looks at her and be like, you know what? If you weren't here, I wouldn't have to be having this talk with my kid. <laughs> and I, I vividly remember that. I, maybe I'm thinking of the wrong scene, but I vividly remember something like that and thinking, wow, this movie's a lot darker than it used to be. You know, I, that's in, crazy. Defense of, in defense of Lois, she never asked him to give up her power, his no. powers. And I mean, come on, she fell in love with Superman. She treated Clark like crap. Why would, <laughs> why would you decide to be the guy that she doesn't like? Man, if you're ever going to make a large, life-changing decision, <laughs> please speak with the woman that you love before you do that. Don't buy her a car. Let's talk about my dad's situation one time he he got a really good deal on a car but it was a grandma car and he got a great deal on it and we were all visiting family in missouri and he was coming from chicago and he drove up in that car got out and looked at my mom and said check out your new car <laughs> you know i'm i'm not gonna say that i remember my parents fighting a whole lot <laughs> But I felt like swords were going to be drawn at that moment. So, you know, those type of things, if you're going to buy a Buick Park Avenue that, that's awfully ugly for your wife, or if you're going to give up your Kryptonian heritage and superpowers, please at least have some kind of conversation Gosh. with the woman before you do any of that. Hopefully your dad found his lost green crystal and regained his powers oh, after that. man. Yeah, Sounds I, like he was driving a new Buick. <laughs> hey, you know what? Actually, the, the next time around when it was somebody else's turn to get a new car, that got passed down to the kids, and uh, she got a very nice new car after that. I so bet. He, he did make up for it later on. So then there was some, you know, they've got other people that, that, that they're talking about bringing in when remember Richard Lester is now directing Superman two, even though they've filmed 75% of it with Donner. Right. And one of those guys is John Williams. So this Ilya Salkine, John Williams and Richard Lester are in a room and they're watching kind of the early cut of Superman two to discuss the score. Ilya Salkind has to leave the room to go to the bathroom. And when he comes back, John Williams and Richard Lester had gotten in such a fight that John Williams said, I cannot get along with this man. I'm out of here. I'm done. You lose the greatest composer. I, I, how do you do that? <laughs> it's crazy. Gene Hackman refused to come back. Valerie Perrine, Ned Beatty, none of those guys came back. So everything that you see in Superman 2 that's got them in it was filmed by Richard Donner. Now they brought Richard Donner in too to see if, you know, <laughs> hey, you know, you can have a co-directing credit on this or whatever. And apparently they got uh, just at the beginning of the Eiffel Tower scene before he got up and said, please do not put my name on this movie. Richard Donner is not the Richard Donner we know of today. At that time, when he was shooting Superman, he was just the guy who directed The Omen and Gilligan's Island. Now he's the guy who directed Goonies and the Lethal Weapon movies. And Richard Lester had done Hard the, Day's Night. And, and Three Musketeers and Four Musketeers. But Right. Uh, it, it seems like there was just a lot of... I mean, there's even there's even some other stuff about how even like Margot Kidder and, and several of the other people just did not get along with him at all. So it just kind of sounds like... He is not the guy to work with, which is probably why most of them didn't seem to come back for Superman 3 either. In order for him to be called the director, he had to shoot over 50% of the movie. Well, with 75% of it in the can, he had to reshoot scenes to get the credit. So, 
and his and his style was very different than Richard Donner's. I, there were there were a couple things that I've read and just in watching the two movies, Richard Donner's they treated it very cinematically, for lack of a better word. I mean, it was very much you have all of these kind of very long shots. I mean, some of the, some of it looks like it could be a painting. Then you've got Richard Lester, and he was very much like I want it to look like a comic book. I'm going to cram a bunch of characters in this frame. Right, we're going to move quickly. We're going to have this kind of shot. We're going to do it this way. The camera is going to pan this direction and this fast. And so it sounds like he kind of wanted to make his own mark on it, but also he didn't agree with the very artistic way that Richard Donner had wanted to shoot this, that it was much more of a, all right, well, this is an action movie and it's a comic book. So let's make it look like a comic book. Well, and I'm going to, I'm going to blaspheme here because I, I mean, let me just say I, I grew up obsessed with Superman too. I literally memorized every line, watched it over and over again. Then as you grow older, you, you realize, okay, there's a difference between these two movies. Superman one was a movie made for adults and Superman two was a movie made for kids. I mean, that really, that's kind of the distinction because as a slightly older person, not completely mature. I watched Superman one again. And I was like, oh, this is kind of long. This is kind of dull in spots. And that's that kind of epic stuff that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So here's the blasphemy. Richard Donner was still campy. His, his epicness and his beautiful scenery was all in Smallville. I mean, it was the, the great plains. And then you had a little bit up in the Arctic, but when, when Superman comes to Metropolis, it, it, the comedy starts and it's it's that same style of goofy dialogue puns and stuff that continues throughout the Superman movie. There's friends of mine we've when we've had discussions about the Star Trek movies. Are you guys Star Trek fans at all? I really like the new iterations with Chris <laughs> Pine a whole lot better than I did the old ones. I like the old ones to watch the movies and I watch the series a little bit, but I'm I'm far from what you this would call it. This is why you like Van Halen, Van Hagen over Van Halen. Oh my gosh, <laughs> broader audience. Stop. Go ahead, John. Sorry, but yeah, no, and that's that's kind of a comparison that that I've made in the past too. Is you know, as a kid growing up, I I used to really like the Star Trek movies, and I I think some of you know some of the stuff with these movies is that the age that I was when I watched these movies, I was always watching them with my dad, and so I always have just these memories of watching them with him ingrained in my head. And I think a lot of my reaction came from his reaction. And I always think of, you know, and I love both of these movies too, but I will fully admit that one is very long and very boring um, (laughs) is uh, the first, the first two Star Trek movies is I always feel like the Superman movies are kind of similar to the Star Trek movies in that Star Trek one, even, I mean, if you're, if you're a Trek fan listening to this, you got to admit that's a long movie and it's not always very exciting. Star Trek two, that was, you know, my, my dad would watch that with us and, and, and just to me that, and some people think that one's kind of boring too. It's like, Oh, it's like watching a submarine battle in space. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's, to me, that movie is, is exciting. And to me, that's kind of like this nonstop action movie. That's, that's a Star Trek movie. And that's kind of how I think about some of the these two Superman movies too, is the first one, it's very heavy on the story. It's the origin story. So you've got to get that stuff in there. You gotta, you gotta pack as much history and mythology and information into this one a little light on some of the action you know when they get to it it's awesome but a little light on the action superman 2 it's boom we're we're action right away you know we're drop kicking people on the moon we're walking on water (laughs) you know all that stuff and don't forget the montage of everything that was important that happened in superman 1 I think I, I think on rewatching Superman one, I, I thought to myself at one point, I was like, did I actually watch this movie or is everything I know about this movie from the beginning of Superman two? I, th- I, w- I would say since we're talking now about Superman two, let's talk about 1981 and what was going on because 
you told me what was what was being released in the theater at this time, and I was just like, holy smokes, I would have lived there. Okay, so Superman 2 was released in the United States, June 19th, 1981. In my estimation, this might be the greatest two weeks <laughs> of 80s movies released you know, during a week, two-week period, any time in the 80s, all yeah. right? So June 12th, the weekend before Superman 2 was released, you had... History of the World by Mel Brooks, Clash of the Titans, awesome, mm-hmm. and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, yeah. all in the same weekend. Yeah. Okay. Next week, June nineteenth, Superman two, as we've said. Yeah. Cannonball Run. Oh, hilarious! <laughs> right. <laughs> the week afterwards, June twenty sixth. Okay, we're bookending this. Yeah. Dragon Slayer, For Your Eyes Only, Great Muppet Caper, and Stripes. So basically, if you're a kid in nineteen eighty one, you're broke. <laughs> <laughs> you're constantly asking mom and dad, mom and dad, can I have a couple of bucks to go see a movie? Just, yeah, I would have, I would have had no money at all. Let's talk about the beginning of Man of Steel. Okay. Let's talk about the origin story there. So this is an entirely different time in history, of course. This is 2000, 2008, Warner Brothers starts to consider doing a Superman movie again. Uh, 2006 had seen Superman Returns, which wasn't a big success. But in 2008, you've got The Dark Knight has come out, uh, Iron Man has come out. And so they're like, I think we can do Superman again. And Iron Man and Dark Knight proved that superhero movies can be mind-blowing successes. So why not go back to the original superhero of Warner Brothers? With the success of Dark Knight and it being a DC comic book movie, they were just waiting for Christopher Nolan. And of course, David Goyer is the one who'd written the trilogy, the whole Dark Knight trilogy. And he comes to Christopher Nolan at some point and says, I have this idea for a Superman movie. And Christopher Nolan reads his script and says, I want to make this movie. You know, in terms of comic book movies, there's two kind of famous threads of the movies that never got made. And it's either Superman or Spider-Man. They always talk about how Spider-Man, they were trying to make a Spider-Man movie all through the 80s. And you would hear that like every year for a decade. Never happened. Same thing with Superman. It was always, you know, after Superman 4, but they had plans to make a Superman 5. The rights went back to the Sulkins because they had lost the rights in canon films. They were the ones that did Superman 4. And so after Superman 4, they went bankrupt. And they always kind of blame, you know, dumping a bunch of money into that movie as as the reason for part of their bankruptcy. But then the the rights reverted back to the Sulkins. And the Salkins were, hey, you know, we should we should do a story. You know, in the comic books, they had like this bottle city of Candor that had, you know, somehow escaped Krypton's destruction, and it was full of Kryptonians. What if we make a movie that brings that bottle city back, and it involves bringing a whole bunch of Kryptonians? And a, so that was kind of the the idea behind Superman Five, and then it just never got made. And then after that, they had uh, the idea behind, you know, there's the Superman Reborn. And that was around about the time that they did the Death of Superman comic in 93, I think it was. And that was a huge hit at the time. And I mean, you had people that had never read a comic book were like, whoa, 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 Superman's dead. I got to go find out what this is. And so that I think... I was one of those guys. Yeah. And and I think that really kind of started a a comic book boom. I mean, it was already starting to pick up in the 90s, but I think that's what started a lot of the heavy collecting of comics and where, where things, as a collector, things got ridiculous but when that was huge then they had these other ideas they're like well you know what let's do a death of superman movie 
like let's do this let's let's kill him in the movie and let's bring him back and let's let's have this you know amazing movie where he's got the you know this giant robotic suit he can fight in because he doesn't have his powers anymore that was kind of at the time they kind of were going back and forth on the script and i i think kevin smith actually ended up coming in at some point looking at the script and being like you guys are out of your minds. Yeah. Like this is the stupidest thing I've ever read. This does not fit with the character of Superman at all. And so they brought him in and then he started to develop the death of Superman lives, the death of Superman lives. And this just sounds like the most insane. And what's funny to me is, you know, that was the one where like Nicholas cage was going to be Superman. Right. And Tim Burton, right? Yeah. And and Tim Burton was going to direct. And I want to say they were going to have just crazy stories. And what's funny to me is that John Peters, was one of the uh, producers even back then and like he had this whole idea of well we got to have like these crazy creatures and we want superman fighting yeah giant spiders we want superman fighting like giant mechanical spiders and and brainiac and and christopher walken's going to be brainiac and like all this just crazy stuff well you know and and a lot of that got shot down it never got made but if you went to go see wild wild west just a few years later that's right it had giant spiders so yeah. he clearly got his you know his spider fetish you know got worked out through wild wild west but so it's funny to me to look yeah, at man of steel success wild, 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 <laughs> I, I know west. yeah you know if you can go from superman to wild wild west um but it's funny to me to see man of steel and see that list of all right who are the producers for man of steel john peters Okay, so I've got a kind of origin story on Man of Steel. Now, John, you're you're from Illinois. You're in the Illinois area. I mean, you're in the yeah. Chicago area, right? Yeah, yeah. So did you know that they were shooting Man of Steel in the various towns around that they were doing that? I did. And actually, I was, I was trying at one point to make a trip down there uh-huh. um, because I knew the town that they were filming it in. And it's, it's far enough away. It's, it's a few hours away from where I am. Yeah. And uh, there were times where I was like, I, I just, I want to get down there and I want to see it. Cause I actually had a chance, uh, another teacher, friend of mine and I, we were extras in the dark night. And so oh, we got wow. to be in downtown Chicago. We spent most of our day in kind of like one of the upper floors of, of some building that was down, I think, by LaSalle Street in Chicago, where they were filming one of the scenes. And we actually were extras. I think all of our scenes where you could actually see us got cut. Uh-huh. Um, but we were extras, you know, story of my life. They won't hire me after I trip over stuff. They won't leave me in the movie. But yeah, we got to be extras in the kind of funeral procession scene yep. where the Joker is disguised as one of the police officers that's yep. going to you know, fire the salute shots. And so we were there for that scene. We were extras on the sides. We were supposed to be people that were panicking on the sides as the Joker was running away. And as he turned and ran away, he ran right in front of us. So, cool. so that was a lot of fun. And, and being able to see as somebody who loves movies, being able to be on the set and see how the whole thing works. I was, I was just as enthralled with that in between time where they weren't shooting anything, like how stuff was getting set up, how they were working with the, the natural light. If a cloud came by, you know, Christopher Nolan started swearing because he knew that his <laughs> timetable was off. Um, but um, you know, just being able to see that in person. So when I found out that they were going to be filming, I think it was in Princeton, Illinois. When I found out, I was like, ah, you know what? I, I want to see this. And I don't remember why I remember having some plans to do that. And it just never, it never materialized. The story. And by the time this episode comes out, we will have done the gladiator versus Braveheart episodes. Yes. And so after gladiator, Russell Crowe filmed a movie called proof of life. And it was also filmed over in the UK and he's got a son in the movie and part of the the movie involves a rugby game. They go to Stowe boarding school to film this rugby scene and they're, 
really playing rugby and there's one player out there that he sees that's just lighting up the field and he's really impressed with him. And then once they're done with their filming and the game's over, Russell Crowe is standing by himself and this young rugby player comes over to him and, and starts talking to him and doesn't say anything about rugby, but just says, hey, you know, I'm considering being an actor and I just wanted to, you know, ask you about that. And so once they finish filming Proof of Life, Russell Crowe is making this kind of care package for the kid who played his son in the movie and includes an autographed gladiator poster. And as he's doing it, he thinks, you know what, I'm going to I'm gonna do one for that rugby player that came over and talked to me and was a nice guy. So he sends him something that says, a journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. And so this rugby player gets his thing and for the next several years will work in London bartending in London and Jersey and then go to LA for a few months to try to get into movies and not be successful and come back and bartend some more until he earns enough money to go back to LA again. And that's his life until 12 years later. And Russell Crowe is working out next to this guy in Naperville, Illinois. And he, Russell keeps looking at him and says, do I know you? And Henry Cavill says, do you remember going to the snowboarding boarding school in the UK? And Russell says, yeah, I do. And he goes, do you remember a kid coming to ask you about acting? He goes, I do. He says, what did I tell you? Henry says, well, you said it pays really well, but they treat you like poop. <laughs> and Russell Crowe goes, how are you, Henry? It's good to see you again. <laughs> well, I remember like one of, my, one of my favorite movies is The Count of Monte Cristo, but Henry Cavill is, is the son in yep. that movie. And I vividly remember at the time, 2002, looking at that and going, you know, that kid could play Superboy. <laughs> that, would, that would be a really good, you know, if they could just get, he's got the face. Like it's, it's a very similar to a Christopher Reeve kind of face. Yeah. So I, I, they should make a Superboy TV show, movie, whatever with that kid. Henry Cavill was in good shape, but wasn't in Superman shape. And so he trained with the same guys from the Jim Jones facility that uh, had trained the guys from 300, Zack Snyder's other movie, who, yeah. you know, all of the guys in 300 look like bodybuilders. So yeah, he didn't want any kind of digital touch-ups. He didn't want anything like he, he was like, you know what part of, yeah. yeah. He's like, you know what, if this movie is about me as a character testing my limits and figuring out, well, how powerful can I become? Like, what do I need to work at this? Um, I thought that was amazing that he just said, you know what, I'm not going to do any of these other tricks that some people might do to, to bulk up for these kind of, this is going to be au naturel. I heard about they, he got ripped up for this movie, obviously really, really cut. Mm -hmm. And they shot all of the shirtless stuff first mm -hmm. so that, you know, out of consideration. And then as soon as that was done, uh, Zack Snyder bought him a pizza and a, and a gallon of ice cream. Okay, so this is, a, this is a good segue, I think, into the actors. And I think first actors that we got to talk about are Henry Cavill and Christopher Reeve. So Henry Cavill, I think, did a good job at being Superman. Christopher Reeve was Superman. Yes. He he was and always will be in my heart Superman. I don't have anything bad to say about Henry Cavill's performance and I think this may largely have to do with the nostalgia idea that we bring up from time to time but I think that 
it probably even goes beyond that because as they they had looked at Christopher Reeve, passed him up, and started looking at bigger actors and bigger stars and kept coming back to him because there's just something about Christopher Reeve that makes you love him. Like, I don't know what it is, and I I, I can't, I, I don't, it's not a definable thing. He just, okay, so the, the actor himself put it this way. He says, when Superman says, I fight for truth, justice, and the American way, a normal person would snicker, but he means it. Right. And Christopher Reeve played that perfectly. He, you, you were like, yeah. Yeah, the American way. Yeah, that's right. Which I mean, you got to think, 1978. That I mean, there was a there was a lot of upheaval in the in the years preceding that. That the idea of saying you know Superman fights for the American way would have gone south bad, but he pulled it off. He I mean, he puts the flag back on the White House in 1981. He he made people proud to be American again. I think that Chris Reeve is kind of like Bela Lugosi in Dracula. It's the first time you get to taste the the Superman character, or at least it was for me. Right. And so that just kind of cemented what my Superman is. Yeah. You know? I don't know. John, where are you with Chris Reeve and Henry Cavill? Yeah, it's, I mean, there's a reason why I think the, the Superman, the Christopher Reeve Superman has been has shown up in other places and, and has influenced so many other things is it's just, it's the iconic portrayal of Superman. He kind of embodies the qualities that you would expect from a Superman in all the performances I've ever seen him in. He's always genuine. He's always charming. He is, I mean, he's a tall guy. So you, you've got someone who is an imposing physical figure, even if he's not, even if he's not bulked up, he's an imposing physical figure and He's kind of, I don't want to call him a gentle giant, but at the same time, he's kind of, he's, he's got all those qualities about him. And I think when you look at what makes a Superman, if, if you're going to be Superman, and if you're going to be, you know, this, this character that is supposed to be kind of infallible when it comes to your optimism and, and your, um, you know, your, your generosity and kindness towards other people, I think you get somebody that embodies all of those things. And I think that's what Christopher Reeve did. I think that's why... You have a show like Smallville. When Smallville did everything that they were doing for the Superman mythology, that's why they brought him in. I think that's why they they tied so much of their mythology to those movies and to you know to that Krypton. And you know, you, you brought in Terrence Stamp as the voice of Jarrell. You brought in, you actually yeah. brought in Christopher Reeve. You brought in Margot Kidder. You you know all those things because for an entire generation, that was your Superman. I can look at Henry Cavill and I can be like, well, okay, that was the guy that was in Count of Monte Cristo and he was in Superman and he was Man of Steel and he did this and he was in the Tudors TV show. And, you know, I, I know a bunch of things he's been in, but the moment I look at Christopher Reeve, that's Superman. You know, in terms of Henry Cavill, his Superman is good. I really like his Clark Kent. In fact, I like his Clark Kent better, I think, than I like the Christopher Reeve Clark Kent. Now, that's he's that's me looking at less the, nerdy, right? Right, and, and that's yeah, yeah, that, and that's me looking at it from an adult perspective. Because as a kid, I was like, "Oh, Clark Kent's funny, like, that's yeah. hilarious." But over the years, as I've read more comic books, as I've read more stories, and I've seen the TV shows like Smallville and and, and some of the other iterations, is 
you've got a Clark Kent that he doesn't have to put on quite as much of a show. Like he doesn't have to be nerdy. He doesn't have to be a, a bumbling oaf. He's you know, the same to, guy. Like right. Clark Kent is Superman with Henry Cavill. They're the right. same. It's the it is the Clark Kent story and Clark Kent's discovery of who he is without any kind of idea that I need to have an alternate identity. He his whole life has had to keep his power as a secret and it just plays into that whole idea. What's interesting is in the last couple of months in the Superman comics, Superman came out, uh, had a press release and said, hey, I just want to let the entire world world know um, I'm Clark Kent and I'm married to Lois Lane. And so Whoa. in the comics, he has revealed that to the world because he he spent the last couple months in the comics being like, you know what? I always tell people I'm fighting for truth and justice and the American way, but I'm lying to people all the time when I have this, you know, these glasses on and, and I'm pretending to be somebody else. That's not very truthful. So he made the decision. He's like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. We'll see how it goes. But I want to embody that truth. And so he did that. So that'll be kind of interesting to see how that all plays out in the comics. But it kind of goes along. You've seen the progression for years where there's much less of a difference between that Clark and that Superman persona. So, yeah, I mean, I I really like Henry Cavill's Clark Kent. I, I do still like Christopher Reeve Clark Kent as well. But I think just comparing the two, Christopher Reeve is much more of the Superman that I think of when I think of Superman and Henry Cavill maybe did a, a little bit of a better job at the the Clark Kent that I want to see. All right, let's talk about Lois. Okay, so in Superman movies, we had Margot Kidder, and in Man of Steel, we had Amy Adams. I'm going to go to bat for Margot Kidder real quick. Okay, go for, go for it. Okay, here's the thing with her. People kind of, <laughs> I know how I feel about her sex appeal. <laughs> it's, it's not great. I okay. feel weird you just saying those two words in the same sentence. <laughs> but you know what? If you go back to Superman 1. She's kind of cute. She's She's a pretty lady. She's she's attractive. Yeah. I mean, she had done Playboy. I mean, you know, I mean, they don't put ugly people in Playboy. Really? Yeah. Google, Google search. search. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she did such a good job with the character, particularly for me, the scene at the end of Superman 2, where oh, she's the, the sobbing. Crying, yeah. And she's selling, not only is she crying, but she's been crying all night. You know, it's it's the great sadness realization of, I can't express my feelings. I can't be in this relationship. It's not going to work. That whole scene was wonderful, I thought. Right. It's we, a little weird that it happens on like the morning after the first night, but yes, otherwise, yes. <laughs> I can't wait to dive into the super kiss here in a few right. minutes. But uh, for me, Margot Kidder did a did a great job with what she had. Yeah. Some personal circumstances caused her to look less appealing as the series went on. Right. Um, but you know, that I, I liked her. Yeah. She, she was, she was great because right off the bat, she's got this kind of Catherine Hepburn esque uh, tough girl reporter, you know, her interactions with Perry white. And she, she knows she's number one in the show. She knows she's the bomb. And so, yeah, I really dug that about her. And then you juxtapose that with how she turns into this kind of awkward high school girl whenever she meets Superman on the balcony for the first time. I don't know. I I like her. I I don't. Okay. I'm just going to say this. There are not many women in this world that I would give up the ability to fly to be with. Mm, Okay. Margot Kidder is definitely not on that list. No. Yeah, Lois Lane is not on that list. No, I don't. Yeah, that's that's tough. Yeah, every man I know would love to the ability to fly. I was gonna say I don't. We even still today, I still don't know why he gave it up. We still don't know. It doesn't. He didn't have to, and she didn't ask him to. Yeah, 
Okay, so Amy Adams. Amy Adams kind of has a, the same type of thing as Christopher Reeve does, where she, to me, is automatically likable. Like you just, it she she comes in and she's tough, tough in a different kind of way. But I mean, I, we're keeping this radio clean, so I can't say my favorite first line. But if we're done measuring these, then then we can move on. And I, I loved her tough attitude, and I loved how they played off of that. Of she's got some gumption, she's got some toughness about her, and she has that same attitude with Barry White. Of hey, I'm I'm the number one around here and don't mess with me I, I like it but again she can be vulnerable and she's just a very nice looking lady yeah i i think for me between the two lowest lanes it kind of comes down. you guys have already kind of mentioned a little bit is you know as a kid i wasn't thinking about a whole lot of stuff i just you know this margot Kidder, she was the lowest lane that was in the movie i'm like oh, okay that's lowest lane but you know having seen several iterations of Lois now in TV shows, comic books, cartoons, whatnot. You know, I, I think it comes down to, again, when I see Margot Kidder for a generation, she, she was Lois Lane. Amy Adams, though, when I look at it in terms of a character, Margot Kidder had that kind of that toughness. You know, she had some of that tenacity that you would expect from a female reporter. But when it really comes down to it in terms of a character, like you know what, if, if somebody like Superman, somebody who's supposed to have an unflappable sense of character and kindness and all these different things. I cannot realistically see him falling for the personality of the Margot Kidder Lois Lane. I could see him falling for the personality of the Amy Adams Lois Lane. Right. Absolutely. No, she's not only is she fiery and tenacious and all of those things that you would have to be, but she's also kind. She's also, she, she, she seems kind and generous. She's smart. Yeah. And, and I just don't, and she doesn't treat him like crap. The Margot Kidder Lois Lane falls in love with Superman mm-hmm. and almost in lust with Superman and treats Clark Kent like crap and disregards him throughout the movie. Like there's no inkling whatsoever that she has any feelings beyond friendship for Clark Kent. In Man of Steel, Lois Lane falls in love with Clark Kent. She doesn't fall in love with Superman. I mean, she's met him and has seen his powers briefly, but it's, it is his story as Clark Kent about why he has to remain quiet about his powers mm-hmm. that moves her. And it is, and it's his sacrifice later on. And that one is Superman that I think causes her to fall in love with him is this understanding of where he is. And to me, that's a much better romantic story than, Oh, I'm enamored by a superhero and kind of losing control of myself. Well, and I, I almost don't want to take it to this kind of extreme and I, I, I'm going to say this, but I'm not really calling her this. It's almost like Margot Kidder Lois Lane is a gold digger. You know, she sees somebody with power and yeah. she's like, oh my God. And then even when he says things like, yeah, you know, I, I never lie. And she's like, are you kidding? Really? That's ridiculous. Everybody lies. And <laughs> whereas Amy Adams, one of my favorite, I think the indication of, of just how she feels about this man is when she's sitting down across the table from him and he's got the handcuffs on. And yeah. she's like, why did, why did you let them handcuff you? And he's like, well, you know, if it helps them feel better. And just the little smile that she gives him at that point, it's like she loves his humility. Like she knows what he's capable of. She knows the power that he's, that he's got. But he's, he's sitting there in handcuffs. And she, I mean, like that, you can see the look on her face. And just that little hint of a smile that she gives is like you can tell she's fallen in love with this guy because he's humble. All right, well, let's talk about, for me, the one of the most interesting characters is Zod. 
So Terrence Stamp is General Zod in Superman 1 and 2. Yeah. And you compare him to Michael Shannon, who is Zod in Man of Steel. What do you guys think on that one? So Terrence Stamp took some recruiting, just like many of the actors, whenever that first movie was coming out, because the idea of being a superhero, having a superhero movie was not exciting to anybody. But as it turned out, Richard Donner found out that uh, Stamp had been studying transcendental meditation. Stamp, just so that if anybody doesn't know the history, he's obviously an incredible actor, but he had he had gotten nominated, maybe won the Oscar for Billy Budd way back in the 60s, and then was kind of a, I don't know that they had People Magazine back then, but he was kind of the guy who was always out on the town and, and doing disco and living, <laughs> living the actor life. He loved the nightlife? Yeah, he liked to boogie. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he... He must have, they must not have needed their wardrobe department to bring his Zod costume. Maybe he already had that from yeah, really. one of his he, nights of dancing. He supplied all three of the, <laughs> of the criminals with their nightlife costume. And so anyway, they got him on. He said that he did not want to give layers to this character. Like he just wanted him to be a straightforward, evil, you know, no complexity, nothing. This is just a bad guy i thought i i love zod in in one and two he has some funny lines like when the police siren pulls up and, or the police car pulls up and he's like the red light reminds me of the red krypton sun i love it <laughs> except for that irritating noise you know oh yeah uh, I, I like him i do think that michael shannon does a good job in fact there's one line in man of steel when they're carrying him away and they're on krypton and he's looking at Superman's mom, and he's like, I will find him. I will find him. Uh-huh. And, he, and he starts speaking with more and more conviction. And it, that last that last thing where he's I like, will, he says, I will find him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, that one kind of shook me. That that dude looked intense. So I think they did both. Both did a good job. I, I'm more partial to Terrence Stamp just just because, but I thought Michael Shannon was great. Where are you with yeah, Zod? Well, actually, the um, you mentioned that line that I will find him. There was a, a podcast that I used to listen to a lot, and it was kind of actually what, what got me started on wanting to do a podcast. It was called um, Geek Out Loud, and the host, uh, his name's Steve, and, and uh, he, he lives in Georgia, and he used to have a radio show. He was actually on, like, on the air radio. And uh, he would kind of have some of the people that would listen to him would send in fake commercials sometimes, kind of like what you'd see on Saturday Night Live, where they yeah. come up with a fake ad for something. And so, around about the time that Man of <laughs> yeah, around right about the time that Man of Steel came out, um, I put together a fake commercial for his radio show, and it was um, oh god, it was called like General Zod's Love Codex, and it was supposed <laughs> to be like this. Uh, it was it's supposed to be like this dating service. And, you know, I had, you know, I, I had my sister, you know, like, pretend like she was one of the people calling into the dating service and, and uh, all this other stuff. But the, the final line of the dating service, like, if there's someone out there for you, and then we had Zod screaming, I will find him. <laughs> <laughs> that's great, man. Oh, that's but, hilarious. No, I, and some of this, too, I, I can't, you know, say what I said before about having watched these movies with my dad. You know, Superman 2, this was, this was something that just... I, I cannot separate the experience of watching this with my dad and how much my dad loved Superman too. And I think I, this was, this became the vocabulary of our house. You know, if I did something and it was, it was something stupid or something my dad had told me not to do, his phrase was ah, wrong again, son. 
you know, <laughs> there was, it was, that was constant in our house. Or, you know, he would, you know, he'd be playing around with us. He'd be like, no, he's like, you got to listen to me, Neil. At least he didn't say, uh, why do you say this to me when you know I will kill you for it? <laughs> you know what? I, I think he might have the first time I asked to borrow the car. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, it's, again, it's like, it's like Christopher Reeve as Superman. This Zod is, is larger than life. Like, he's, he's very two-dimensional. So, yes, it, it's not, he's your, he doesn't, you know, it's your mustache-twirling villain. Yep. It's your, um, you know, it's you, you mentioned Dracula before. It's like your old school 1930s Dracula. Like, there's no complexity to yeah. this character. It's just a bad guy. It's a classic bad guy for the sake of being a bad guy. And, and I think in a movie of this kind, that's what makes him great. Now, having said that, Michael Shannon, that brings, he brings the complexity. Like, I, when I saw that and I saw his take on Zod, I'm like, you know what? I, oh, they're doing Zod as the villain? Why? They already did it right the first time. But now watching... Watching this one, actually, I might have to take that back a little bit. Um, yeah, he is a phenomenal Zod. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no way around this. the 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 fact that he brought to this movie a motivation that had you almost—I mean, you, you were you were conflicted, and and I think that was what was great about it was they wanted Kal-El to be conflicted. Like, oh, well, I, I've never known any of my people. Well, now my people are here, and they don't seem to be such great people, but. You know, I Kryptonian. We got to keep the Kryptonian thing going. So maybe I should be, maybe I should be aligning with these people. Maybe I shouldn't. And there's that, there's that kind of push and pull in the movie. And I think that just that backstory of Zod being like, look, I was raised to defend my people, and on Krypton, whatever you're raised to be, that's what you are, and you don't deviate. You know, that's built into the fabric of our culture and our society. You don't deviate from that. You don't change from that. And I think his Zod bringing that to it's such a desperation when it gets to the point at the end of the movie where, you know, a lot of his people are now gone. And he even says that he's like, I, I, I am here to defend my people. And now because of you, I have no people. Yeah. And then it, I remember you've taking you know, my soul, you, you, right. You, you've taken my reason for being. And I remember watching that and just thinking as I'm watching this in the theater going, Oh dear Lord, you have left this man desperate and without anything else to lose. Now he's going to be like even worse than he ever was before because you have pushed him to the edge. Up until that point, you could almost watch it. He's one of those villains where you're like, all right, so he's a bad guy, but like I get why he's doing it. I wouldn't do it, but I get why he's doing it. And I think that was just, that was an amazing take on the character of Zod. And, and so I, I think part of that, it's a little bit tough because it is, it, it's a little bit of an apples and oranges kind of thing is, there's always a good place in time for a good two-dimensional mustache twirling cackling villain, but there's also a good time and a place for, wow, like this is a villain. Like this yeah, is yeah. the kind of villain I, I, you can sink your teeth into. So the, you know, the, 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 you look at the motivations in both of the stories, the Superman one and two story, Zod's motivation is tyranny. I mean, he wants to reign on high from the beginning. That's what gets him in trouble in the first place is that he's, he's, trying to take over control of Krypton. And then ultimately when he gets to Earth in Superman 2, that's his whole goal is to take it over. And then when he finds, you know, when he finds out that the son of Jarrell lives, then he's he's bent on having his revenge. But these are all very vice motives. I mean, there's nothing redeeming about any of the motives that he has. But with the way they wrote Zod in Man of Steel, Krypton has got this kind of brave new world type of system 
system where people are no longer birthed naturally but created in a in a big chamber and the, each person is created with a specific job in mind and zod's specific job is to protect krypton and the kryptonian people and he's he follows the leadership until such time as he realizes hey they're they're now bureaucrats and they're causing the the death of the people that it is my duty to defend and to, to to see that kind of passion behind it i had to i had to go well you know what if i was in this situation what if i had no familiarity with this other race of people my one job was to protect my people i mean just you got to think of it like your family you know if if i could bring back my family from annihilation and what it took was getting rid of a family that I didn't know. Could I see myself doing that? Yeah, maybe. Cool. I read a whole article about how General Zod is actually the good guy in Man of Steel. <laughs> All right, everybody, that does it for part one of the podcast. Please join us next week. We will have John back, and we will be discussing the remainder of Superman 1 and Superman 2 versus Man of Steel. Don't forget to go check out the 30-something podcast. And as always, thank you for joining us. All music, images, and movie clips are used for the purposes of commentary and education.